Okay, so today we are continuing our study in the book of Romans. Uh, welcome to those that are here, to the members, to the congregants, and to the visitors. Uh, thank you for uh, joining us. Um, you may be asking, uh, what do people do at church? What does Acts Reformed Church do? So it's very simple. We pick a book of the Bible. We start in chapter 1, verse 1, and we go through the whole book, explaining what the Word of God means, how it applies to our lives, and what we are called to do, our response, what that response should be to hearing of the Word of God. So hopefully we are edified as we study the book of Romans today, beginning in chapter 5 verses 1 and 2. If you are able, please stand for the reading of God's word as we turn to Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. The inerrant and infallible word of God reads as follows. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this passage in the book of Romans. Although short, these two short verses, you remind us that we have access to be at peace with you, Lord. Through the work of Jesus Christ. Any other way of us attempting to have peace with you, Lord, is a dead end. Literally, remind us of that Lord or even if we are indifferent to being either at peace or at war with you that means we are at war with you by the power of your Holy Spirit therefore we ask this morning Lord that you give us conviction to be drawn to you to be drawn to your mercy that we may trust in the forgiveness that is in Christ and in his finished work it is in his name that we ask these things in Jesus name Amen you may be seated so I've titled today's sermon at peace or at war with God. My friends, my brothers and sisters, make no mistake, this very day, you, you individually, young, old, adolescent, doesn't matter who you are, you are either at peace or you are at war with God. Okay? Scripture tells us that the default position of a person when they are born, even as little babies, although they are innocent in the sense that they, they have not seen corruption or destruction or their mind may be guarded from that nevertheless even that little baby we are told in scripture is an enemy of God because of the sin nature that is in us so as we go through the passage today please keep this in mind today this very day you yes you are either at peace or at war with God up to this point in the book of Romans Paul has been teaching us using the, the church at Rome as, as his audience, that all people need justification. And we can summarize up to the book of Romans chapter 4, which we already covered. We can summarize that in two points, which I have put up here. Paul has taught us that, number one, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Meaning that in our default position, we are all doomed from the get-go. Out of the box, as it may, we are doomed. And secondly, therefore, because we're in that state, Paul has made it known that therefore we are in need, in desperate need of justification. And unless something is done, unless there is divine intervention, 
we are lost. We are dead. Now, what does justification mean? I don't want to speak Christianese to us. We need to understand what we mean. Justification. What does that mean? Justification, as used in the Bible, means a legal standing before God of being declared righteous. In other words, someone no longer is guilty of sin, but is now not guilty. This is what the passage today is going to remind us of. Justification. What does that mean? There it is. When you come before a judge, you are either declared guilty or you are acquitted. And that word acquitted is actually the word that is used in our passage today. You are either acquitted or you are guilty before God. Now, think of someone being acquitted after being tried for a crime. Granted, in our fallen world, there's been times that someone may be acquitted, may be declared not guilty, when in fact they were guilty. And many times we could say, how could this injustice happen? Right? If the evidence is so clear, either through a flawed jury or through influence from the outside, or even through a corrupt judge, someone who evidently is very guilty of a crime gets acquitted. How can that happen? Right? Be assured that it's not so with God. Whoever is declared guilty or is acquitted before God, that is the correct verdict. God is not a corrupt judge. In whatever verdict he gives each of us, that is the righteous and correct verdict. Now, that's the bad news, right? That if someone is guilty, there will be no bribe, there will be no backdoor entrance. No, that's the bad news. And Paul has made that very clear thus far. Thankfully, now Paul has moved on to start introducing the concept of the good news, the gospel. That there is a way to be justified before God. And that is by the righteousness of Christ being applied to us, being given to us. That's it. Any other way will be a dead end. Paul thus has put forth a clear example of someone who was justified, someone who was made right before God so that his audience has an example to look to. And Paul points to Father Abraham. He's the patriarch of the people of God in the Old Testament. Paul has told us that Abraham was justified, meaning he was made right, he was acquitted, he was declared not guilty before God. By what? By believing the promises of God. In other words, by faith. And we are told that likewise, if we follow the example of Abraham, that is, if we believe in the promises of God, then that, that belief, that faith, will be granted to us as righteousness. This is true for those who trust in the finished work of Christ only. So what is Paul's main point in this text then? Paul has told us in this text, as we will see, that faith in Jesus brings justification. It brings a not guilty verdict. That justification also shows itself in that we are now at peace with God. And that peace with God gives us access to saving grace, which leads to joy and hope in the glory of God. So how can we then experience that peace with God? Because remember, you are either at war or at peace with God today. 
We experience that peace with God by being justified by faith, being made right before God by faith, not by anything you could do, but by faith. Secondly, we experience that peace with God by giving all the credit of that peace that has happened, giving all that credit to Jesus only. Thirdly, we can experience that peace with God because we are granted access to saving grace. And lastly, we know that we can experience peace with God if we can rejoice regardless of a circumstance. Okay, so let us dig right in. Number one, experiencing peace with God will be, it will happen if we are justified first, if we're justified by faith. The first portion of our text today reads, Romans 5.1a, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, not after all we can do, like our Mormon friends tells us, right? No, by faith. The word therefore given is linking the example of Abraham that Paul has just given, meaning Abraham believed God, it was granted to him as righteousness, right? So therefore, we too, Paul says, if we trust in the promises of God, that is the people in the church, Paul is saying it will be, grant, be granted to us also as righteousness if we believe. And Paul is saying that those of us who believe the promises of God, like Abraham believed, and trust in those promises, we are there declared justified before God, and we, in fact, are the true children of God, just like the children of Abraham. Now, justification, remember, is a legal concept, and Scripture teaches that. Let us go back to Deuteronomy 25, the first verse, where this concept is introduced. It says, if there is a dispute between men and they come into court and the judges decide between them, acquitting the innocent and condemning the guilty. So that word acquitting is the same word that we're looking at in the Greek translation of the New Testament, which is justifying, acquitting. That's what that word means, acquitting the innocent. So even from the Old Testament, we have this concept. There's a dispute. There is some issue going on. Those people are going to come before the judges, and the judges will either declare this person is either guilty or they are acquitted. They are not guilty. There's only two. It's a binary choice, okay? So then, as we come to the concept of believing in order to be justified, of believing in God's promises in order to be made right before him, what must we believe? That's a very good question. Abraham believed in the promise that God would give him a nation, that he would make him the father of many nations, that he would give him a son when he was a hundred years old and when his wife was a hundred years old. Now think about it. Is that likely? If someone comes and makes you a promise in your very old age that you're going to have a son and your wife is also a very old age of not being able to bear children, that's, that's a ridiculous promise, right? But we are told that Abraham believed God and it was granted to him. That belief was granted to him as righteousness. In our case, then, looking at the example of Abraham, as Abraham believed God, we are told that if we believe the promises of God, that faith of believing God will be, make us, will be making us righteous before God. So what must we believe then? What must we believe? Let's take a look at Romans 10, 9. It says, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, 
that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Okay? Now, many will say, I believe in Jesus. Yeah, I was raised in church, or I go to a Christian school, or just a matter of fact, I, I do believe in Jesus. Now, notice that. Not only confessing Jesus, but it says, confessing him as Lord. Jesus is not your homie. Jesus is not the man upstairs. Jesus is Lord. That means you submit to him as someone who is a slave to submits to a master. There's no such thing as saying no to a master. And Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. Lord. Jesus is Lord. So if we confess him as Lord, if we love him as our master, if we believe that and we act that because we're convinced of that in our heart and we believe that he was raised from the dead, if we believe that, it says you will be saved. Right? Is there a long list here of make sure you do this, make sure you're wear these clothes, make sure you do, you give money to the church, make sure you do charity? Is that there? No. No, it says if you believe, if you confess that Jesus is Lord and believe that he was raised from the dead, you will be saved. So now we're starting to see what belief makes us righteous before God. What will give us a not guilty verdict before God? Let us look at Acts 16.31. It says, and they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Here again, what is it that makes somebody saved? In other words, somebody spared from the righteous wrath of God for breaking his commandments. What is it? Do? What is it? Perform? What is it? Make sure you don't fall out of line? No. Believe. Believe in the Lord Jesus. Again, the Lord. Lord. Okay? And you will be saved. One more. John 3.36. It says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. Okay? There's so much to say about that verse. I'll point out a couple of things. First, it says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. It says, whoever does not obey the Son does not. That means that belief and obeying goes hand in hand. You see that? Because the scripture says in the book of James that even the demons believe and they tremble. So an intellectual acknowledgement is not enough. We must obey the commandments of Jesus, and we shall have eternal life. And then lastly there it says, but the wrath of God remains on him, to those that don't believe, those that don't obey. And that confirms that that is the default state of every one of us. That the wrath of God is upon us, that we are enemies of God. Remember, today, we, all of us, we are either enemies of God at war with him or we are at peace with God which one is it so then we are exhorted then by reading and realizing this, that we are to believe in Jesus as Lord the right Jesus the eternal uncreated God the Son the second person of the Trinity who existed from eternity past who created the world who entered this world lived a perfect life died a death that you and I deserve for disobeying God, for being rebels against God. 
And after he was crucified and was buried, he rose on the third day, according to the scriptures, and was seen by as many as 500 people. There was no way to disprove that Jesus has, had risen from the dead, proving that he defeated sin and death, and that everything he said is indeed true. Jesus then ascended back into heaven in bodily form, and he's now seated at the right hand of God the Father. He's waiting for the divinely appointed time in which he will return to gather all the saints and judging all unrepented sinners, meaning all those that are at war with him. Now, keep this in mind. The right Jesus, believing in the right Jesus, is very important. Believing in a Jesus who is not God Almighty in the flesh is not believing in the right Jesus. Believing in a Jesus who has no power to save unless you let him or unless you allow him to is not believing in the right Jesus. A Jesus who really can't do nothing unless you open the door of your heart is not the right Jesus. No, my friends, the Jesus of the Bible is God Almighty who when he says you are coming, when he says follow me, you will follow him. That is the power of the Jesus of the Bible. He's the Jesus when he says, rise, and you are literally dead, you rise. That is the Jesus that we believe in. When he says, follow me, you will follow him. Do you believe in the right Jesus? If you don't, that is one of the primary indications that you are at war with God. That you are at war with Jesus and that you are his enemy. Now, a common accusation of outsiders to Christianity and even of some cultists is you guys believe in cheap grace. Meaning, you say that you are sincere in believing that you are saved by grace and not by anything you do. And as long as you claim that, that you're fine. Now, obviously, that is not true. But let me bring this up. My friends, my brothers and sisters, there's a warning there. That accusation could be true. Where we are saying, where we are claiming that we do believe the right Jesus, that we have faith in him, but when the cultists, when the non-Christians accuse us of cheap grace, many times their accusation is true because there's no fruit in my life. Because I have no concern for conviction over sin. Because I'm cruising along thinking that just because I believe in the right Jesus, that my theology is good, that therefore I'm good and I could just chill and relax and sin all I want. Let us beware of that. My brothers, if that is so, let us repent. So do you believe then that you are justified by grace through faith? The biblical answer is yes. Yes, may we proclaim that. Yes. Now the proof is, is your life changed? Do you have fruit? Has your temper improved? Has my temperament improved? Has my speech shown that I'm no longer the person I used to be? Has my character changed? Am I a generous person? Where's my generosity meter? Do I look to get, 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 or do I look for opportunities to give, give, give? That, too, is an indicator of whether I believe in cheap grace or not. 
and in whether I believe in the true Jesus who is Lord. Now, don't get me wrong. It doesn't mean that because you do those things, you will be saved. No, 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 no. Because you are saved, you're going to obey and do those things. Do I love God? Do I love his word? Do I love his church? Now, we all go through dry seasons, right? I don't feel like going to congregate today. I don't feel like reading the word. We all have dry seasons, my friends, my brothers and sisters. But if you look back into your life, how long has it been since all you can recall is a dry season? That's all I remember. I don't remember having that fire, having that thirst to love God, to read his word, to be convicted of sin and to repent. That too may be a sign that we perhaps want to be at war with God. So proof that we are becoming more like Christ in our character, in our attitudes, in our priorities, in our character of our everyday life living will be a proof of whether we are indeed enemies or friends of God. The fruit in our life will give us an indication. So then being declared innocent before a holy God depends on us having true saving faith in the true Christ who gives us a new nature to produce good fruit. And we are known then, we are known at that point to have been justified. We are now made right with God by faith, a faith that has transformed our minds, our hearts. Now let us take a look at the next thing we are told. To experience true peace with God, we must give all credit for that peace to Jesus. The rest of verse 1, let us read that verse 1 again. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So before having peace with God, justification by faith must happen. And then it's sort of like, what comes after that, right, right? There's different ideas about it. But for sure, before we have peace with God, we must be justified by faith. No human being is ever born by being already at peace with God. It's opposite. All of us are born being enemies of God. Then hence the title. Are we still at war with God? Or are we now at peace with God? Let that be the main takeaway of today, my friends. If you are not justified by faith before God, even if you're not sure whether you're justified by faith, or maybe if you're indifferent of whether you're justified by faith or not, that is an indication that perhaps you are at war with God. Now someone who is not acquitted before a judge is necessarily in the other category. It's a binary choice. We are either acquitted before a judge or we are declared guilty. Nahum chapter 1 verse 3 gives us that insight. It says, The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. Okay? The common objection when we talk about God declaring people guilty is, wait a minute, I haven't done anything. I've, I'm actually ignorant of the things of God. I haven't offended God that I know of. How all of a sudden you're telling me that I'm seated in the seat of the accused all of a sudden? Well, this is what we must understand 
the doctrine of the nature of men. Unlike God, who is holy and perfect and righteous, we are the opposite. We are depraved. We are corrupt. That's the doctrine that we know as total depravity. We are sinners by nature and by choice due to the fall of Adam. All born with original sin. And it doesn't take long to realize that has broken the commandments of God. All of us have missed the mark of what is required. And we come way short of the standard that God demands. This is when Paul has told us in the book of Romans, everyone is screwed. Everyone is doomed. Okay? That is total depravity. That is the default state of us. So we don't become sinners then. We are sinners. Sinners, just like criminals on their own merit, cannot be, cannot be acquitted of their own crimes. Any attempt to make things right with the judge on the criminal behalf or to make things right before a righteous God on the sinner's behalf that does not include having Jesus as our lawyer, Jesus as our advocate, will not only be a failed attempt to make God content, but it will be something that will dig us deeper into judgment. In other words, wanting to be acquitted, wanting to be saved before a holy God by presenting anything other than the righteousness of Christ is a spit, is a slap to God. Not that you could do that, but you're offending God. It's like telling God, you know what? I don't think the fine for offending you is that expensive. I, I think I could pay it. Let me see how much I got. And we quickly realize that if we do that, our debt increases. It does not decrease. That's an offense to a holy God. Therefore, if we cannot do anything to be acquitted, to be declared righteous before God, we must again return to the concept that Paul is telling us that we can only do that through faith in Christ, through believing in Jesus and his work in the cross. The moment a person realizes there's nothing they can do to be right with God other than to put their faith and trust in Christ and repent of sin, that means a change of mind, a change of heart happens by the grace of God. At that moment, the perfection of Jesus is given to you, is given to me. And then the peace of God comes. The peace of God that surpasses all understanding comes upon you. And that peace in order to have true peace with God, the credit for that peace must and be given to Jesus, only to Him. It's not because anything we've done. Galatians 6.14 sums it up as follows. It says, But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. There, Paul also speaking there saying, there's nothing I could boast of. Nothing. But only in what Jesus has done in the cross. Right? That peace that we are granted, all that credit, we can say, well, you know, I kind of helped God out. I kind of met him halfway. No such thing. All credit, if we have peace with God, must be given to Jesus. Hence the, uh, the hymn that we sang today, right? Jesus paid it all. Only him. All glory. All praise. 
All credit goes to, to, our, to our Savior, Jesus Christ. Thirdly, if we are to have peace with God, then we have access to God's saving grace. Now, what is grace? Grace is when we get something we don't deserve. Sometimes when my kids are acting up and they wake me up pretty early, and instead of punishing them, I go and, and I buy them a treat, I show them grace. Right? They didn't deserve that. But we even have that within ourselves, right, with those who we love. Imagine God does that with people who hate him. He gives us grace. He gives us what we don't deserve. So faith in Jesus allows us access to that saving grace. That's our position as believers. That's what it says. We stand in that. That's our identity. Those that have access to the grace of God. Now a comment about saving grace versus common grace. All of us here, all of us in this world have experienced common grace. It's available to everyone. That's why we have the ability to breathe and live and eat and enjoy nature, God's creation, enjoy our families. That's God's common grace. We don't even deserve that. And God has granted us that. Now, saving grace is something that only is given to those who trust in God, in Christ. And some may say, well, wait a minute, that's not fair. If that is your position, that's a sign that you don't understand unmerited favor. You don't understand grace. How can we think of that? Think about this scenario. What would happen if a group of robbers sneak into the king's palace in order to rob him of his valuable possessions and to hurt his family? And just when they enter and they're about to start doing their thing, the king's army comes and overpowers the robbers. At that point, the king steps in, and instead of executing those robbers on the spot, he actually forgives them, lets them go, and as they're leaving, he showers each one of them with gifts, literal gifts. If you were watching that from the outside, would you then say, hey, wait a minute, that's not fair. That one robber got a bigger gift than the other guy. What an unfair, what an unfair king he is. If we can imagine that, we can get a glimpse of how off our human judgment can be when it comes to God showing us grace and mercy. Both his common grace, where he's already given us what we don't deserve, and even more with this saving grace that he gives to those who trust in Christ. Now, we all deserve death. We all deserve hell. We are those robbers that have snuck into the king's palace trying to overcome. And we can't, right? We think we can, but we can't. But we are those robbers. And God has given us grace after we try to be his enemies. That is what we get. That peace is what we get when we put our faith in Christ and what he has done. We gain access to that saving faith. Think of it as perhaps many of us have been in a position where we are trying to enter a website or get granted access to a software we just bought and we keep getting the wrong password, right? 
How good does it feel when you finally pray? Oh, it, oh, it works. It's like that when you have the right Jesus. It's nothing that you do, but all of a sudden you get access to God's saving grace when you apply your faith in Jesus Christ. All of us have enjoyed common grace, the gift of life, love, comforts, enjoyment of creation, family, etc. But remember, only God's people are recipients of saving grace. So the key idea then is this. Through Christ, we have access to saving grace. And that word access speaks not only of us being granted the blessings that come with knowing God, but also this access in the Greek is a word that means that we have access to an opportunity to be before the presence of a superior, especially to speak with a superior and to be shown favor by that superior. The idea is this. If you go before the presence of the highest authority in the land, that's even true today, without permission or without being summoned, you're in bad shape. If I sneak into the White House today because I want to have a word with the president and I'm uninvited, I'm in bad shape, right? It doesn't matter how well-intentioned or not my intentions may have been, right? I'm in bad shape. We can see this in the Old Testament when we see that we must approach somebody in authority only when being summoned. Remember the story in the Old Testament? Who was called, was not called to come and see the king. And she prayed and fasted and then she went before the king. Anybody? Esther. Yes, Esther, right? And she basically trusted God. She says, if I perish, I perish. Here I go. To plead for her people. So then, we must approach God in his terms, under the provision he has given us. What is that? Approach him only through the work of Jesus Christ. Anything else will come short. And this is why Jesus said in John 14, 6, says Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And it's also an insight into why People ask, well, why are those Christians so stubborn? Why are they so exclusive? Why are they so hateful? Why are they such bigots? They only, Jesus, Jesus. Yeah, because Jesus is the only one who can pay the fine. Jesus is the only one who lived a perfect life. Jesus is the only one who is God in flesh. And therefore is able to pay the sacrifice that is, grant, that is needed to grant forgiveness. No one else can fit that bill. And that's why Christianity is so Exclusive. Amen. So then, approach God through Jesus. Any other means, such as false religion, offering how good your deeds have been, any false ideology of so-called positive thinking or positive energy, or even by indifference, ah, I, don't, I don't care or I'll find out when I die. Any of those will come short and you will be confirmed to be an enemy of God at war with God. So the plea today from me to you, my friends, my brothers and sisters, seek peace with God while he can still be found. Approach God by faith, trusting in what Jesus has done. 
That's the only acceptable approach to God, to be at peace with him. Don't remain as an enemy of God today. Now, you may be here, you think, you know what, I'm, I'm still young. I, I still have my whole life ahead of myself. Child, adolescent, teenager. Or you could be on the other end of the spectrum and say, you know what, I'm already kind of old. You really can't teach, you can't teach old dogs new tricks. Well, you're not a dog. And for you young ones out there, I've shared this before, but in the last two to three years, I've had to preach at funerals of someone who was almost 100 years old and others that were as young as 18 years old. Seek peace with God today while he still, while he still could be found. Be at peace with God by trusting in Christ. Lastly, how do we know that we have peace with God? He said we can rejoice. We can rejoice. Let us read verse 2. Through him, that means Jesus, we have also obtained access by faith into his grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. That word there, rejoice, it's actually the, the, Greek work, the Greek word to boast. The same word that Paul used when he says he cannot boast in anything else, but only what Jesus has done. It's the same word. Not boasting in self, but only in what God has done. The word glory there, the hope of the glory of God, that's the word doxa. It means a state of high honor, splendor, greatness, when you realize what Jesus has done, when you realize that Jesus has forgiven you, no other response but to fall on your face and just say, thank you, Lord. Thank you. That's all you could do. State of high honor, splendor, and greatness to realize what God has done. Now where it says, the hope of the glory of God, the hope. To a normal hearer, when we say, Oh, I hope that such and such happens. In our world, that means, man, this guy is, he's really doing some wishful thinking. Like, I hope that that happens. That's not the way that Paul uses his word. When Paul uses that word, hope, it's not that he's crossing his fingers hoping that God will come through. No. Paul doesn't have that in mind. The language used is of a hope that is something certain to, ha to happen, we just don't know when, we're just waiting. That's the kind of hope that Paul talks about. Something that is certain because it's a promise from God. Remember, the concept here is believing the promises of God, and that is granted to us righteousness. So then that hope of the glory of God is expecting with certainty that one day we will see God in his full glory. That we will see Jesus face to face. What did Jesus say about experiencing and seeing his glory? Let us look at John 17, 24. When Jesus said, Father, this is Jesus praying. He says, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundations of the world. We can see 
an example of someone seeing the glory of God when he was full of the Holy Spirit. The book of Acts gives us an example. Stephen, right before he was killed for testifying about Jesus, this is what Stephen said, Acts 7, 7, 44. But he, Stephen, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Believer, Christian, have the hope that when you take your last breath, you will see and experience the fullness of God's glory. And that's the sense in which we should be hopeful, not wishing that God may come through in what he promised. No, but with a certainty that just as Stephen was joyful when he died, a painful, miserable, humiliating death, that all he could focus on was seeing the glory of God in his full majesty. And for you, my friend, that are not sure whether you are at war or at peace with God, my plea with you is that you would consider that you would not see the glory of God. And if you do, it would be only for judgment. So what is the final thought then here? As we apply this even more to our everyday living. After we're heard today, let's see. Well, am I, are you justified before God by faith in Christ? Yes, no, not sure, maybe. Well, your eternal destiny is at stake. Now, we're not playing around here, my friends, my brothers and sisters. If you have doubts, let's talk. If you're not sure whether you are at peace or at war with God, don't be shy about talking about it. Talk to me. Talk to your, to your parents for you kids. Talk to your friend, sister, brother in Christ. Don't keep silent. Don't assume. And secondly, right, the question logically follows, are you then at peace with God? If you look to anything other than the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, to claim that you are at peace with God. You do not have peace with God. A sign that you have peace with God. Remember. Will be that you also have peace with others. If you constantly live in conflict with others. That is a red flag. You do not have peace with God. Right. Scripture says that. Him who has been forgiven much. Loves much. If you cannot love your brother, your sister, your neighbor. It is perhaps because you haven't been forgiven yourself. If you have peace with God, you have peace with others. And lastly, do you have joy? A changed life in Christ is evidence by good fruit in your life and the joy that you experience and that you reflect. This joy does not depend on current circumstance, but rather on the unchanging truth that you, that I, have the hope, the assurance of one day sharing the fullness of God's glory. My plea to you is, if you are unsure whether you are at war or at peace with God, cry out to God, fall upon His mercy, 
and let's talk about it. These are things of everlasting, of eternal consequence. May the Lord give us conviction. May he draw us to him today while he still can be found. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the book of Romans, which reminds us that we are to look to Jesus. That There's nothing we have, no good deed, no good behavior that we have that we could use as payment to be at peace with you. That's impossible. Allow us to trust in Christ. Give us that faith, Lord. We cannot have faith unless you grant it to us. Grant us that faith this morning to trust in you, in your word, in the work of Christ. That your Holy Spirit may do that work we trust today. In Jesus' name, amen.